This is Ebody and X, and this is The Candid Frame. You can now download the latest episode of The Candid Frame directly to your smartphone or tablet using the Candid Frame app. Available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows 8, you can automatically receive and listen to the latest episode minutes after it's released. Mark and download your favorites or send your comments and suggestions directly to me via the app. Download it today using your favorite app store or click on the links in the show notes found at the Candid Frame website. Whether you're an enthusiast or a professional photographer, we are often concerned with having enough time. The day-to-day events of our lives and work aren't very accommodating for our desire to be out making photographs, especially personal projects. We often try to squeeze it in when we can. That is especially the case if you live in a city like Los Angeles, where you spend countless hours inside of a car. For most, that time lost in traffic is just unproductive. Lost time, whose only benefit sometimes, is a respite from the demands of home or work. But for today's guest, Sarah Jane Boyers, it proved to be a time of great creativity, as she began producing images from inside of her car. The result is gridlock which was recently exhibited at the Leica Gallery here in Los Angeles. This and her other work demonstrate her ability to find images of things that many are familiar with, but who would never guess at its photographic potential. So enjoy our conversation with Sarah Jane Boyers. Well, thanks for doing this. Absolutely. It should be fun. You know, the, the gridlock work I, I really related to. Um, and one of the first things that I, I, I wanted to ask you is, is how did this project change your, your perception of commuting in Los Angeles, of the role of the car in our lives in the city? Interesting question. I think, you know, I am a child of Los Angeles, so I've been on the roads all my life. Uh, I think this project made me think about it finally. And we always complain about traffic. We complain about what we're doing. But being stuck there and starting to see what was around, to really understand it, was a whole different experience. It made me not just complain, <laughs> you know, which is what we do. It made me think about what it meant as a, for me as a photographer, as a visual structure. It also was a change for me. It was one of the first digital experiments I did when I was moving from film to digital. And it also made me feel the social structure of this city. It's not just that we speak, which we always have as Californians, in terms of time. We don't say how many miles something is. We say it'll take you yeah. 20 minutes. <laughs> you know, it'll take you an hour, um, which is becoming much more because it's not taking us 20 minutes. It's taking us almost from almost anywhere an hour to an hour and a half. 20 minutes just to get out of the driveway. It's 20 minutes to get out of the driveway. But it also is in terms of what our our social structure is and what it means. And then, again, going back to the arts, when you're stopped, when you're doing what I do, which is looking at detail, 
and seeing what's around you, of something that's not meant to be seen, it really makes you feel about the physical structure of the city, yeah. what it is. So I think there's a variety of things that the Gridlock Project, which was actually like a, a little side project for me. It wasn't one of my, at that the beginning, a serious project. I was stuck in traffic. I had my little point-and-shoot Leica with me. It was just fun. Yeah. It was fun or trying to figure out what to do, but it became actually very serious. And as I thought about it, it also relates to a lot of the other things that I do. So it's continued that way. And in fact, I think it's influencing some of my other projects. It's really interesting because our relationship with the car is so integral to who we are. Absolutely. And, and when the car first came out, and I remember um, taking a look at old advertisements for, for vehicles, and they were touted not just as sort of a luxury vehicle, but a means for freedom. The idea mm-hmm. that you would get in a car with your family and you would take these excursions and, you know, places that normally might not be accessible were now readily accessible because you you had your own set of wheels. Right, but yeah. not accessible anymore because there's too many sets of wheels. <laughs> right. And now our relationship to our car is so infused with a lot of negative stuff about the time that we were stuck in the car and all the sort of lost time that we have because we're caught in, caught in traffic. And your work I thought was fascinating in, in a variety of different ways, not least of which was that you were able to take elements that I think all of us see and you were able to make beautiful images of it because all those Thank things you. I recognize but within the context of the frame, you really transform not only what we see, but the entire experience of what it means to be driving or not moving or stuck in traffic. And was that sort of obvious to you when you first started or were you just sort of experimenting, making snaps and that, and that sort of your idea of what this project of, was about sort of developed over time? I think it is the latter. I think that I was starting to experiment. But if you look at some of my other work, the work that I've done, it is about, it's always about detail. Uh, I was told using your comment that things that you see but you really don't see. On my 12 year project on the Chinatowns of the US and Canada, I've shot in 50 different Chinatowns. But my something about me, maybe it's my contemporary art or my art background, makes me want to go very into a subject. So I'm not necessarily a landscape photographer. I'm not necessarily a documentary photographer in terms of the look, but I look for detail because I find a presence in them. The Detroit work that you're looking at right now. And I think that I've been told with some of that work also by people in the Chinatowns who say, I walk by this every day, but I never see what you see. Mm -hmm. So I think what happened with the Gridlock Project is that same sensibility that I have started to come into play there. And I all of a sudden became, and the first ones were experimentation. Again, they were experimentation with a digital camera, and a little camera I could just take with me that had no viewfinder because I'm, I'm out there on the road, you know, yeah. stuck for a moment. And for most of the project, I was driving a stick shift car, which was part of it, which I loved. Actually, I think my best photographs and those that are like are probably the earlier ones that were at the show because there was a chance and a risk. And so I'm holding a camera. I can't look through a viewfinder. I'm in the fast lane, creeping, trying to stay in first, probably destroying my transmission 
but (laughs) and shooting, you know, and shooting. And I'm always in the driver's seat. I was not ever in the passenger seat. That was part of what I wanted to do. So there's experimentation. And then I found this. I started looking at the work that, in fact, I was doing something similar to what has always interested me, which is I'm finding those moments. I'm finding things that were built. I mean, when, when the freeways with this great idea of going far, far out into the landscape. Mm-hmm. When they were built, the people who built the freeways or the bridges, they were with bridges especially. I mean, I think of the 405-10 interchange. That was designed by a woman, which I always thought was so terrific. And it's beautiful. There's certain beauty to it. Um, they did do that, but other parts were not, but they end up being beautiful anyway. Mm-hmm. There's something when the light, it's still, it's a very classic. It's when the light is right. No, when the subject matter is right, there's all those things that go into it. And I feel very good about the fact that I'm finding something beautiful. And also it's peaceful because you're in there being stuck. Yeah. And I, what I love so much about the project, because I've made images while I'm stuck in traffic. In, As in have car. many people, yeah. But you take it to a, a completely different level. And it gave me an appreciation for the limited time that we all have to be creative and how sometimes it's just a choice to look at that limited time that we have and to think about what can I do with it, mm-hmm. even with all the limitations. And being stuck in traffic is a huge limitation. It is. But that you manage to, you know, take that that point and shoot camera mm-hmm. and a pretty good working, one. <laughs> granted, and you know, and, a stick shift and a stick shift and yeah. all that and all the. All the complications right. of just negotiating the freeways in, in the city of Los Angeles. That's right. And you made an amazing body of work. And I think it's, I, I find it very inspiring. Well, thank you. And by the way, it is point and shoot, but I'm shooting in raw. I'm, I'm not shooting manual, but I'm shooting aperture priority. So I'm still making mm. a group of choices in there. But it is, and it's relaxing for me. It makes me feel, it does take up the time when I'm sitting there. And now, after, maybe six years of doing this, I feel that also it's, it's extre- extremely gratifying for me to do all the things that I like to do, which is to do it, to edit, to focus, to know what I'm doing, when it, to make that change when it, became, it changed from just an idle project to something that was serious. So maybe it also I'm working. Yeah. I'm relaxing, but I'm working. But I find it freeing. Using, again, your analogy of going off into the distance. So I'm stuck there. I'm imprisoned in many ways. And I have mm-hmm. a bit of claustrophobia. And sometimes, you know, when I, when I had the stick shift, I was driving sports cars. I like speed. <laughs> 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 and you're stuck. But it feels freeing. It feels very, very freeing for me to do that. And to use, you know, I'm listening to the radio or something going on. And to, but to use my mind and my eyes to find that beauty. Yeah. You know, I don't know if, you, if you're aware of it, but Gary Winogrand for a time um, was doing uh, some work out of his car. Well, all, he was in the passenger side from mm-hmm. what I remember. Right. And he was uh, photographing, you know, people walking was, down the street. That's right. Were you aware yeah. of that work when you started your project? I wasn't though? when I was aware. No. Um, there were some people I knew. I knew Stephen Shore's work, you know, his very early work, you know, which was doing out of his car. Uh-huh. He did the very famous um, 
Beverly and La Brea photograph, the stand, I think it's a standard station and some of it. So there was some work that I knew. I've learned more about other work. There was a, well, I was already doing the work, but there's the, the Via Selman's amazing painting that she did. I think she did a few of them. There's one at the Getty, or there was one at the Getty PST, I think, of um, just the image out of the car of the freeways. And then, of course, there's painters who have done it. I mean, it's a very yeah. California thing. I think though there are probably others who do it, too. Yeah, I mean, Joe, Joe Meyerowitz just, um, I think, had an exhibit of work that he did when he was in Europe, uh, when he was fairly young, mm-hmm. uh, where he took images out of, out of a car. Out of a car. And I think yeah. it's, I think it's a, a, a genre, or fascinating, just a genre of sorts, mm-hmm. in, in the fact that what is worthy of being photographed? And, right. and I think that this is as ordinary and as common as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. And that it doesn't have to be particularly exotic or, or no. quote unquote special, but that somehow you can pull something out of there that creates a wonderful experience between the photographer and, and the viewer. And I think so much of your imagery, whether it's the Detroit, whether it's Chinatown, whether it's the mm-hmm. gridlock, is so much about taking the, the, the extraordinary. The extraordinary. But it's also the common experience. It's, yeah. it's making something that is really part of our daily lives. And I think, as you said, when you're in the car, it's finding something worthwhile in something we don't think about every day. But we're experiencing every day. Why do you think you're sensitive to that? Because so, mu- so much of us, so many of us are so caught in the rush of, of life or trying to pay the bills, raising families. And you know, you know, you're not exempt from all that, but why? (laughs) So, so what do you think it is about your upbringing, your, your life experience that allowed you to sort of perceive the world in this way to make the photographs that you do? That's an interesting question. I'm not sure I know. Um, but let's think about it. Uh, part of it's my, you know, I'm an art history major. And I love arts. I mean, that's been the passion in my life. And I am also a, a really busy person I, in terms of everything I do. I don't mean that with a sense of importance. It's just that I'm scattered. I'm too scattered in too many ways. I think photog- photography in general, and maybe looking this way, has been the way that I relax. And mm-hmm. to relax, it's the way that I find a challenge that it's up to me to meet without anyone else imposing that on me in many ways. And so it has become a quiet moment for me. And it's a moment where I don't, though I don't set up in a studio and I don't think, I am am sensitive to what's going on around me. And that's why I shoot what's going on around Mm -hmm. me, I think. I, I want to tell a story. And so I think that the way I do it is photographically. And then... My love in art has always been, there are other photographers, but I mean, my love in art has always been the abstract, the, the area that you don't say very much, but it, it raises very, a lot of questions. I mean, the New York school, the abstract, and maybe that's it. They're all about surface and, and different yeah. things. You know, if you look at uh, Kenneth Noland or Klein or the different people, they're, they're reacting. Um, Ellsworth Kelly who reacted to light and different things, but made relatively abstract work. That's always interested me in many ways. Um, the urban landscape interests me. Thinking about the interview today, and I'm going to hand to you something. This is the, one of the f- children's books I did on contemporary art and poetry. It's, I combined the work of Wayne Tebow, 
who is another Californian. I mean, he's not really, he was born in Utah, but he's here with um, the work of Catherine Lee Bates, who wrote A Beautiful for America the Beautiful. And I was thinking about it today, and his work is about, in his work is about freeways. And in the, one of the ones I showed, and I'm taking time, where I combined, and I thought about it just today, the, the words from America the Beautiful, a thoroughfare for freedom beat across the wilderness, which is mm. one of the, the lines. And look, it's freeways. It's what he's doing. No, and It's not a freeway <laughs> I recognize now. It's not a freeway, <laughs> but it's, it's actually, it's this beautiful painting, since we're on radio, of, of just a plain, a very Western landscape, which is what he is, with trucks and cars on it. Much more vacant than today. <laughs> But there's this this interest, and again, I'm also going back to to the traffic and the freeways. I'm a child of I am a child of California. I'm in my late sixties. I'm older. I've seen. I've been here since I was one year old, and my father loved to drive. And the I've seen the freeways being built. A lot of them. And what's happened to them? That's the other part of it. I'm interested in my city, and my city has gotten crowded. It's not just the 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 roads, mm-hmm. but the areas have spread and spread and spread and spread and spread, and for good and for bad. But they are. It's about urban sprawl, and it's about what it means, and that's the social structure that does interest me as well. Mm-hmm. And I've always had that interest. Um, in what's going on in our country and in our world. And the freeways are very much part of it. They are ribbons that go through, but they're also the, they get you there, but then they don't get you there because there's so much out there. And they prevent you now in a city like Los Angeles, and I think other ones, they prevent us being together. Yeah, absolutely. And that's of great concern to me. I had a discussion. I live out by the beach in Los Angeles, and the PCH is now going through all sorts of construction, major construction. The next year we will be gridlocked because the Santa Monica incline is coming down for work, construction work. There's all these things Mm. going on. We're awaiting the expo. We're awaiting. I've traveled a lot around the world. You know, a metro line is something to take us places. It's wonderful. We're waiting for it to come, but it's not there yet. So there are people who don't go anywhere but that area. And they're missing the culture of the city. They're missing the people of the city. We started out in Los Angeles with a lot of geographic segregation. Because of the freeways, we came together for a moment. And now because of the traffic, it's coming again. And that is a major concern because what we're supposed to be, I'm pretty naive about it and hopeful, is together and understand each other. So I think there's a lot of reasons that brought me to this type of project. And they didn't come from the beginning, though. They came came because I was doing it, and then I started thinking about it, which I think is important for us to do as writers, as photographers, that when we focus on a project, we have to understand a lot of the implications or say, let's learn more so I can really understand what it is I'm doing. You've you've spoken about your... Your feelings for Detroit. You were born there, even and you were raised here. I was born in Detroit. Yeah. I was born in Detroit, and I lived there one year of my life. And um, my father was working there, so I have no family there. Uh, so, but you went back there and, and produced a unique body of work, which in my is still opinion. ongoing. Yeah, and 
and, and tell me why that was important to you and what what is it about that city that that draws you because i have have i have some comments about the photographs but mm-hmm. i really want to hear before i say anything what what you were thinking when you, when I, you started I think making those images there's there's a few things one is though uh, you know i'm i'm a, i consider myself a californian i came out here when i was 1 year old and I grew up, my brother was a surfer. I grew up by the beach. I do. I did all these things, and I love the city, though there are times I wanted to leave, but I'm here. Um, but people always have said, oh, you're native Californian. I say, well, no, I was born in Detroit, but I had zero idea what that meant. Mm-hmm. And so I thought over time, my father didn't talk a lot about it. My mother wasn't from there. I mean, it wasn't that they didn't talk. It was just there was other parts of their lives. And over the years, again, as I've gotten older, my parents are gone. I felt, well, there's something. There must be something there that I want to do. And about four years ago, I started going back to the city. And what I did is, and at the same time, everyone in the New York Times, all over, I started hearing Detroit became on on my radar. Mm -hmm. And Detroit became on everyone's radar because that was all the devastation. At the same time, in the photographic world, Andrew Moore did this amazing a project called Detroit Disassembled, which is a series of incredibly beautiful photographs of the devastation of of much of Detroit. Um, He did it along at the same time that there was this French photographic team, Marchand Mefre, who also did it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I went in thinking, well, I just want to see what's there. And I thought the most interesting, this was also, this became very personal. I went back through some of the boxes I have at home. And I found things about my father that were there. He was like a madman, an advertising guy then. I mean, he, he had been in fashion advertising in New York, and he was brought there. He played polo. He had a private plane. He did all this stuff. He had no money, you know, but it was mm-hmm. that really true. And you're talking not the 50s or 60s when the show is on, but it was that same type of thing. But I found these moments and these pieces of memorabilia, things I found a UAW card. I didn't even know he had been a member of the UAW. So I decided I'm going to go back and use these little pieces of memory and follow his footsteps. So the very first time I went was around the time of my birthday, specifically planned a trip in January, which is really cold if you're in Southern California. But on my birthday, I was in the house in which I was born. And I met this amazing family uh, three siblings, uh, two sisters and a brother. Their parents had not bought the house from my parents, but pretty soon after. And we are like family now. They consider me like family. And I go back and I photograph the house every single time. Oh, that's and, nice. But it's really nice. And I've learned, so I, I've kind of fallen in love with Detroit. And I've had, because Daddy was in the type of, Again, with no wealth business, he went back. He was on the board of one of their biggest buildings. So I've had this amazing access to the city at all socioeconomic levels. And I just love the city. And it's also, I keep finding comparisons to being in California, to growing up in Los Angeles, to Detroit. I mean, these big, wide streets, of course, the automobile. I mean, Mm -hmm. I come from a family that loves cars. Um, the architecture, I mean, they are mid-century architecture, which we have so much of here that I really love, and I photograph a lot on another project. Um, you know, you have Cranbrook, my God, you had Mies van der Rohe there, you had all these amazing people that 
you see it in the city as well. Even in the devastation, there's still wonderful areas. And, and, that's, and there's life there. And, Amazing life. And I, what I liked about the, the photographs is your obvious affection for the city. I really do feel And an that came across in the photographs of I, as I was looking at them. Well, thank because you. I have an aversion to the way Detroit is often portrayed. I've never been there. Uh-huh. But I've seen enough of the... Um, they call it ruined porn. Yeah, ruined porn. <laughs> that I, I, I feel like that's not only cliche, but I think it 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 do, doesn't re- represent what life is is for the people who live there. Absolutely. And it, they don't it like has, it. It has no relationship mm-hmm. to what day-to-day life is. That's Granted, right. That stuff is there. I grew up grew up in South LA, so mm-hmm. I'm hypersensitive to other people's perceptions of, of, of a community that totally disregards the sort of the day to day of most of the people mm-hmm. that live there and That's what the great. life experience is, is there. So when I look at your images, um, I appreciate that you bring that to the table, even though you aren't a native Detroit. I mean, you were mm-hmm. born there, but you're not an, uh, a, a native. Absolutely. And, mm-hmm. and I, it's great to see, to see that because I think so much of what happens when an outsider comes in is whatever sort of baggage that they have influences the photographs and sometimes burdens mm-hmm. the photographs. And I like the fact that you, that you infuse those photographs with that, that affection and that openness to, to some elements of the dilapidation that's happened within the city. Mm-hmm. But you also don't allow that to be the sole launch pad for the photograph. I, I really, I do love the city, and I wanted to learn about the city. Uh, and I found in the Chinatown Project, I'll go back to that for a second, mm-hmm. I found, I, you know, I'm a writer as well, and I, this, I get a little schizophrenic at times because... I want to know everything before I go in and do something. But it's not good when I do my photographic work. So in the Chinatowns, I've learned very quickly that I did go to cities with a purpose to photograph a Chinatown, but I learned that I didn't want to do any research other than finding out the coordinates of where it was because I wanted to walk and see what it was and be open to that visually Mm -hmm. more than anything. And I use that same approach to Detroit. And it's very hard because from the very first time I went there and I actually used someone who had worked with Andrew, whose work was one of the early of what you would call the ruined porn, but I think it made it brought it. He did it very well intentioned. It brought it to everyone's attention. But I saw some things. It is very, very hard for a photographer not to shoot. It is so seductive the ruin. It is so beautiful in its devastation. So mm-hmm. it's a fight not to. But mm-hmm. it depends on how you're correct, how the approach is. And I find when I wander the streets there, I find so much more. And also, I have people tell me, I mean, I'll go somewhere that I have maybe on my father's little, on my little map of my fa- where my father was, to the building where he worked or something. And then they tell me someplace else to go. So I'm listening to the people who are there to say, mm. where do I go? And so I'm getting some of their mm. sights of the city. And I, I have also, it's funny in Detroit, Detroit also, when I said I was starting to go back, people said, oh, you have all these Midwest values. I had no idea what Midwest values. <laughs> <laughs> but there is something... There, there. You walk the streets. You walk the streets in the on the east side, 
which everyone says, oh, you shouldn't walk the streets. You know, you shouldn't go alone. You don't do that. I walk the streets with my camera. There are a few places where I might keep the the car running occasionally. But I have people coming up to me. I have young guys coming up, and they say, what do you do? And I say, well, I'm from L.A. And they say, wow. And then I say, but I was born in Detroit. And they keep saying, wow, you came back. And they'll show me, and they want to know what I'm doing. They want to show their city. They really want to show their city. The people in Detroit are working hard. They want to show their city. They are trying to bring it back. They are in desperate situations. There is no doubt, but there is a lot going on. And it's not just, though, I've met a lot of the new people are coming in. You know, it's a haven for artists. It's very inexpensive. And that's very good. But there also is the other side of the people who are there, who are working hard, who have been unhappy with what's going on. But they're also bringing it back, going back to where my family home is. It is now primarily an African-American area um, that is lower, blue-collar to lower middle class, which is very nice, pretty little homes. Well, the day uh, I, I had told them I was coming, you know, I wanted to meet them and see the house, they also had, I went with them that night and I've gone again to their monthly block part, block meetings. It's truly block by block, where they're holding on to their block against the devastation, against the abandoned homes, against the foreclosures. And even, so each time when I visit, the last time was last summer, and I'll probably go again this next fall. And now there's this beautiful sign on the block that announces the block, which kind of says, don't mess with it. So they're fighting. And they're interesting people, and they're holding on to their neighbors, doing something that I wish we did more of in L.A. Yeah. I think that there are lessons of Detroit that are lessons of how you cannot let a city go that is happening all over. I see that coming back from Detroit. I do see empty buildings and things and think, you know, it can happen here very quickly, um, though it took 40 years in Detroit. But it still can happen. It's been time here. But the other lessons are they're there, and they're joining together as neighbors, you know, and business people. And I find that strength so hopeful for this country mm-hmm. that I think that's a part of what I do. Having said that, I'm still, it's not a, by any means a finished project. I'm still not really focused on what it is I'm doing. So I'm trying to figure that out. It yeah. may be just what I have. Because there is a tendency you want to do, okay, I want to tell the story. And I still go. I did last year. When I was there, I ended up, which I I learned only a few days before I went, I landed the day before and went the next day to the 50th anniversary of the march uh, with Martin Luther King. It was the first time he ever did the I I, uh, Have a Dream speech before he went to Washington. Mm. So I went and I photographed that. But it doesn't, it's not really in my project as much because it's more photo documentary. It's It's leading me away the wrong way to what I do, but it may end up there later. I haven't quite figured out what the project is, you know. I'm better at this quiet, still moment. But do these fit in, do they not, or do I do a small part of it, or do I do, I have one image of, uh, it went from there to uh, President Obama coming in the next the next day, or I think, over, no, that was over Labor Day, that was the year before, forgetting when I went in. And I have this great picture of two kids holding up we want to work science, so that might go in. Yeah. I mean, there. I don't know what the project is yet, but there's a variety of parts of it because it's a complex city. Your, your work is really interesting because you don't include people. 
but they're infused with the presence I feel that. of people. Thank you. Yeah. And the images from Detroit, the stuff from Chinatown, even the stuff in the cars, they, they touch on the whole idea of isolation. Mm-hmm. But I never got the feeling of despair or negativity. And I was trying to think about why is that? Because it's the the isolation and the sort of the aloneness and the emptiness is very palpable in your photographs. Mm-hmm. And I and I think that part of it is it's it's your use of color and light that you end up using a sort of a, a counterpoint to that overall feeling that we have because mm-hmm. there's there's no people in the photographs and you're showing these unoccupied spaces. Um, do you think that's why? the images create that response at least for, for for me or do you think it's it's something else a lot of people have mentioned that so i think it does create the response for a lot of people i look at the work a lot as as stages i mean I, there's a certain cinematic element i know in my use of color and light i again what you touched on before i always feel there's a presence and sometimes something's passed through life is passed through um, sometimes it's waiting to happen. So the lines, the design, uh, I think there's a quiet. I don't see it as much as isolation. But perhaps that's some of the feeling. I always feel something's going on, that this is, I'm capturing a moment in a story. I felt the, 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 idea, the line that came up into my, in my head when I looked at, uh, at some of these images is that it's a stage waiting for an actor to come in into it it's it's mm-hmm. well, it's a find, room that's in between it's in between moments mm-hmm. i think that's totally true yeah but tell me about the the chinatown uh, project that was interesting not uh, not least of which was because you explored different chinatowns in the united states and in in canada why why the choice to explore different chinatowns why what was it that you were trying to discover I think, again, that was the first project I did as a serious photographer. And it made me think about, I started because of light as the play. I've been a photographer since I was in college, but I went other career ways. I was captured by the light one time in, in the San Francisco Chinatown on an early morning. And I thought, okay, you know, I live in L.A., and I'm very familiar with the Chinatown here. My father worked... When I was a child, his businesses were downtown L.A. Hmm. And he and my mother had a fascination with, with the Chinatowns. They liked it. They loved the arts. My grandfather, I learned, funny, later, after I was into the project, my grandfather had been, well, I knew he had been overseas once, but he had been overseas as a business exporter or business person between China and the United States. This is in the 20s or something like that. So... I started photographing more in the Chinatowns, and I'm also very interested, again, I'm interested in the the history of the United States. I'm I'm, I'm an art history major. I'm really not that interested in history, but it's a long-term, you know, I've always known. I've been lucky to grow up in, I, I consider myself very lucky to grow up in Los Angeles because it is a city of such great diversity. It is a city of one of the major ports of immigration, it has a lot of things that have always fascinated me. The mix of people have fascinated me, relating back to the gridlock when we were yeah. talking about this. And, my, and I was very lucky that my parents, who came here with me as a child, my brother, loved that. You know, Daddy would take us 
on drives. And we would talk about, he would say, look at the names of these streets. They're all Spanish. That's the, the heritage was here. Everyone was here. Look at this. You know, Many of the people, when he, he had photo labs in downtown L.A., he came out to establish photo labs to service the advertising industry. He had mm. been in advertising to do the V-Loxes. It used to be these great big old cameras that he'd go part curtains and see them. And many, because it was downtown, many of his employees um, were part were Japanese, Japanese-Americans, because they had many people in the arts and the industry. And, you know, I, I learned, and he really wanted, my father was always teaching more than I do, but he wanted us to understand what the United States, and especially the city that we were in, is made up of and who people are. So the Chinatowns represented something, to me, of a long-term, over 150-year immigration to the United States that we forget about. And also that was interesting to me because on my mother's side of the family, they came, came around the same time, you know, around the 1840s or something like that, pretty assimilated, which you couldn't do. In the Chinatowns, you could not assimilate. They were, were, but because of the racial barriers, it was a very different type of situation. In fact, you know, the Chinese, which I learned over time, are the only people who have ever been excluded from the United States, named exclusion, when the Chinese Exclusion Act from the 1920s went almost all the way up to the the 1960s. Mm. Um, But I I also was just fascinated. It brought me back in some ways to some family influence in terms of this, but also I just, I just enjoyed wandering the streets. And maybe when you talk about the isolation of my pictures, there is something for me, too, that maybe there was a feeling that I could walk alone on these streets. You know, I just walked. I didn't always understand the signs. Um, I had time to think and just explore photographically what I was seeing. So it became very visceral. The images were very visceral to me. And again, it's another project that as I went further, I thought, well, maybe I should just explore more. And so I was still writing. I had a book out that came out in around 2000, and I was wandering around and going to some writers' conference. I was a children. I'm a published children's author and uh, illustrated books and some books about politics, a book about politics for children, for youth, for teenagers. But I would go and I thought, oh, okay, so I'm in this city. Maybe I should find out if there's a Chinatown here. And as many projects start for many people, I kept doing all of a sudden I found, well, I'm going to look here and there. And soon I actually even have a couple in Europe that I photographed. Mm -hmm. But I decided when I realized that I had a project, I was going to limit it to the United States and Canada. I might like to, and I probably will go to Cuba and different places one day, but it's an overwhelming project because that's a huge, huge emigration all over the world. Uh, And each one's a little bit different. Each one's a little the same. But I also felt that, okay, we are talking about Americans. It's an American story. It's not really a, as much a Chinese story, but it's an American story. Yeah. And I've appended that. The project is, is entitled Finding Chinatown, but more and more I'm appending it. Um, and I still want to do a book and start doing some museum shows. I've had a very successful solo show here in Los Angeles uh, two it's, years ago. It's fascinating that, yeah. that despite the diversity of the subject matter, that all of these are about being American in one way or another. Absolutely. And it's, Absolutely, it's, it's and I guess that's very much who I am. Yeah, you know, I mean, I have, should say I do have one series that I've shot a lot in about light and uh, 
uh, a different type of presence called sacred, silent, and waiting. And I've done a lot in Europe of that. But I think that I'm looking as an American. It's who I. It's really who I am, and. I'm comfortable with that. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not always comfortable politically, but we're not going to go in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, before before we end, I want to talk about the, your book publishing. Uh-huh. Um, the book that you have there, you know, Life Doesn't Frighten Me. It's, uh, it's a collection of poetry by Maya Angelou. And, it has one. And, oh. and mm-hmm. photographs, I mean, uh, paintings by Jean-Michel Basquiat. And from what I was reading, that book has been quite successful over the last 20 years. It has uh, been. Yeah. Tell me about that part of your, about your life. Cause as you mentioned earlier, you're very busy and I have no doubt that, you know, these young adult books and these, these other publications are a big part of that. I think this is what I always wanted to do. I mean, I, in, in middle school, you know, I wanted to be a journalist, but I was always drawing and doing things as well. I mean, the arts writing were always what I wanted to do, but I was a good girl. I kind of went a different way. My my parents said, do something else. And I went to law school and, um, which I hated. <laughs> and I went to art galleries all the time, but I wrote a very successful paper. I was writing that won major awards on, um, Resale rights for artists became part of actually the California law on resale rights. Um, and then because I did that and I won awards, I went into the music industry. I was, you know, they, and it was because was, I won a major award and major publication. So I spent 20 years in the music industry, which I loved. I had a great time, but I always, only, only nine years as a lawyer. But even as a lawyer, I was in music companies and I hung out in the art department. But when I stopped doing that, I thought I'd stay in entertainment. But I think my during the time I was in the music industry, I was political. I was a member of the Hollywood Women's Political Committee and very interested in a lot of social, very social act media. And in the early 90s, when I was st- had stopped managing performers, which was, I was doing, I thought I'd go into film production. I thought I'd do something. And all of a sudden... The NEA was under under fire. You know, Robert Maplethorpe was being absolutely criticized. Jesse yeah. Helms was saying, let's get rid of all this stuff. And I woke up one morning, and I had young children. And I woke up one morning, and I'd always loved children's books. When I was an art history major, I always hung in college. I would buy children's books. I loved the graphics of illustrated books. And I woke up one morning then in the 90s and said, you know, I think I'll just do something about contemporary art and artists for children because that's a wonderful way to show that there's these amazing things happening. So Life Doesn't Frighten Me is the first book that I did, and I combined a 1978 poem by Maya Angelou with the work of Jean-Michel Basquiat and managed to sell it, and it won a lot of awards at first, and I'm very proud of it because it crossed over to many, many people. Um, In it, I... It, it, people, most people think I started with the poem, but frankly, I didn't because mm. my art is still, my visual sense is even stronger. And I love the work of Jean-Michel Basquiat. I thought he was a very interesting artist. And I looked and looked and I talk a lot about how there's conversations in, in all the fine arts, you know, in theater and music and photography and everything. There's conversations, there's conversations between the subject matter and the person, the creator, than the person who's looking at a work or reading something. They, 
each has a different perception. It's a very magical thing that happens. And I was interested in the two books that I did in this in this genre, especially about the conversations that the artist and the poet, even if they're not written specifically for the book, mm-hmm. that I could put them together, I could find that marriage, and then let other people also find their own. So this has been a very good book. Life Doesn't Frighten Me has, as I said, gone out to many people. And I was... Just in the last few weeks when Dr. Angelo died, she she had actually I had the great honor last year, and you know, you think these amazing people will live forever. She called me last year. Mm. I mean, I got this email from her office saying, Dr. Angelo wants to talk to you today. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so she said, Will you call at this time? So I called and she said to me, she said, I've always loved this book. She says, people always come up to me and ask me to sign this book. And it is just so much strength, and I'm so glad what you did. Would you like to do another book with me? And I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so over the year, it's been a busy year. I had some things in a museum show. I thought I'd get around to it. And I was just starting to, and she died. Oh. You no, know, I mean, I'm sad of that, but I'm sad for many reasons because yeah. she was such an important person and such an amazing person. But it started me thinking about bringing my work, my work, and some other things back to this area too, because it's young minds, and they are the ones who, without all the barriers that we put, start to look. And books, to me, are still a really wonderful way Absolutely. for them to, yeah. for them to understand the world that they do. So I. I love these books. I kind of stopped. I did the two books on contemporary art and poetry. And I did a book for teenagers on civic and political activism that came out in 2000, which is a very nonpartisan book, and spent a lot of time doing newsletters, which would be blogs today, and then let it go. I actually think I may want to do that again. But I think there's a point of my life is that you always combine all the things. And it was funny when I did the the book on civic and political activism. I was reading law again after all this time. <laughs> Constitutional law, you know, to see what you do, what you do about voting, what you do about things, and also what you do about youth involvement. Because it's not just about voting, it's about doing something that makes change. And that's what the arts do. I mean, I think that's and, a bit yeah. of it. The Detroit, all of these projects to me are subtle ways. You don't always have to beat people over the head. And sometimes you don't even realize you're doing it, but you're doing something. I hope I'm doing something that makes change. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think that getting young people, kids, the opportunity to see this work in galleries or in books is such a critical component of that because they don't experience it looking at a computer screen or a tablet. It's just, it's, it's, it's not as transformative as it can be when you're in a space where you're just dedicated to looking at it or you have that physical manifestation in your hands. Just, just, I think it makes a difference. I mean, I will go back to the social part again. I, I was over with some friends, a former client, we were at the California Science Center the other day. It costs a lot of money to take a family to these wonderful things that are owned by L.A. County or counties throughout the country or cities. It's time for these places to be free. It's time for our country to underwrite better again. Mm, I mean, I really believe in yeah. that. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer 
for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Oh, my. <laughs> um, there, there are two international photographers who I do think about. One is Danica Kous, K-U-S, who is... Who I suppose, like me, perhaps I respond to her work. It's very, very beautiful, somewhat architectural, somewhat fine art, but really full of, to me, full of emotion. And I, I like her work very much. And I think as a, and maybe like me, we're a little more traditional. We're not as contemporary. You know, we, we, it's not so much traditional process, but I think there's something there. And the other is, Ed, it's Edmund Clark, C-L-A-R-K. And Edmund is very political. And his work is done also without beating you over the head, but hard. He did an amazing series on Guantanamo that is very beautiful. I think he's just been picked up by a gallery here. Hard for the American public, but I think that it's important for the American public, where he went, he photographed in Guantanamo, and then he also photographed people who had been released there in their homes. And oh. it's really quite a series. So I like that very much. And then the earlier series he did were about prisoners in England, he's British, who were in prison for life and what their cells and who they were was like in their old age in prison. And it's, again, he doesn't necessarily show the people. Again, I think I'm using, I'm thinking right now of people whose work maybe relates to mine and that the, the person's not there, but by the objects and the things in the room show huge personality and yet also a comment on the prison system. So well, I look um, forward to looking at both of those. Look at, look at both of those. Yeah. So I have a lot of friends who are photographers, other friends. <laughs> both of these happen to be friends as well because I met them and admired their art. Um, so I have a lot who are going to say, why didn't you mention me? <laughs> I have oh, a, a great amount of Los Angeles photographers. Who you can, can blame mention. me. <laughs> <laughs> so where can people go to find out more about you and your work? Um, I have my website, which is www. It's very long. I'm sorry about this. SarahJaneBoyersPhoto.com. And I'll spell it S-A-R-A-J-A-N-E. B is in boy, O-Y-E-R-S-P-H-O-T-O dot com. And the reason it's so long is because for years I had my literary website was www.sarahjaneboyers.com, so I had to do something different. It was so long. <laughs> well, thank <laughs> you so much. It was a thank pleasure. Thank you. It's been fun. Thanks. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the show. Remember that my latest book, Portraits of Strangers, is available for purchase. And for loyal listeners of the show, you can enjoy 30% off the ebook or any other book or DVD that I've produced, including my first book, Chasing the Light, Improving Your Photography Using Available Light. Click on the link on the show notes and use the promo code PORELLO, that's P as in Paul, E-R-E-L-L-O, to receive your discount. The Candid Frame is brought to you by the generous contributions of listeners just like you, as well as the work of our audio engineer, Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.